Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 46. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall round it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them in the same way. Last of all, he sent his own son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants, who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Thanks, Alison, very much for reading. Can I add my welcome to uh, Claire's, if you've joined us since the beginning. It's great to see you uh, here this lunchtime. And uh, we're, this is the third in a series of three uh, in um, Matthew chapter uh, 21 that we've been looking at these last three weeks. I don't know if you've noticed in the, the last few years, but TV companies seem to have spotted a bit of a gap in the market for exposing bad tenants. Um, perhaps you have been avid watchers of popular series such as World's Worst Tenants, Tenants from Hell, Bad Tenants, and, or even Nightmare Tenants. And uh, here are some examples of some of the tenants who feature in these programs. One man is found operating a sweatshop from his garage. Uh, another one, a cannabis plantation. Uh, one somewhat portly tenant gets stuck in the bath for days and a major rescue operation has to be mounted to extricate him from his bath. There's also the furious tenant who calls his landlord at 6pm on Christmas Eve to demand the immediate removal of a spider from his bath. There's another one who digs out the kitchen island and pulls it outside, thereby making a much more convenient food preparation area next to his barbecue. And my personal favourite the tenant who, when leaving his property, made his feelings about his landlord very clear by removing a huge section of plasterboard of one of the walls, depositing a load of dead fish inside the wall cavity, sealing the wall back up again, and the landlord only finally discovered the source of the stench some months later. Now, even these tenants are not a patch on the ones that we read about in this passage that we've just had read today. 
These tenants want to steal the property from the owner and they will do anything, even commit murder, to get it. It's a shocking story of rejection by these tenants. And in, in the response of the vineyard owner, we see his justice, but we also see extraordinary love. And it's often the case with the parables of Jesus that we've heard them before many times, um, and through familiarity they can kind of lose their shock factor. So I want to try and uh, invite you to uh, come to this parable again as if you're hearing it for the very first time today and uh, see what you think. And we're going to think about it under three main headings, the rejection of God, the justice of God, and the love of God. So first of all, the rejection of God. And let's just take a moment, have a pick up the passage again, if you would, and just notice the details of the parable in verses 33 to 39. Master of a house plants a vineyard. He's not a farmer himself, he's a businessman. And he takes great care in setting up his vineyard perfectly with no expense spared. And uh, then in the in other translations, it says he went into another country. This one, I think it says he, he moved to another place. But literally, it's moved to another country. And this, is, this wasn't um, unusual uh, at the time of Jesus. Much of that upper Jordan Valley and the, and the Galilean uplands were planted with vineyards that were in foreign ownership. And there are, are records of the time of wine and grapes being exported from there to surrounding countries. It was also standard practice to lease these vineyards to tenants who would take care of the vines and then the owner would get a percentage of the grape harvest as his rental income. Now what follows in verses 35 to 39, however, was not standard practice. Even for one servant of, a, of an owner to be, to, to be refused payment would have been deeply shocking and shameful in the culture. But miles worse than this happens. A whole succession of servants get beaten, stoned, and even killed. These tenants are just totally determined to get control of the vineyard. And actually, the property laws of the time enabled this to happen uh, within three years if the uh, owner was absent and didn't return. If they hold out long enough against the owner, they know that they'll be able to get his property. But the arrival in verse 38 of the sun rep represents an opportunity actually to fast-track this three-year period uh, to, to, to much less because the fact that the sun is turning up suggests to them that the owning father must, must be dead and the son is here to take his inheritance. And in killing him, they know they will then get this vineyard uncontested. The whole parable is a horrific story of violence, greed, and power, and murder that would make Quentin Tarantino blush. And in verse 45, we see that the chief priests and the Pharisees know that the parable is directed at them as the tenants. They would have recognized also the servants who are sent in the parable as representing the Old Testament prophets who are often referred to uh, in scriptures, God's servants sent by God to call his people to repent. So, so they stand accused of, of killing God's messengers. And the identification of Jesus with the son in the story would have been crystal clear too. Because Jesus 
identifies himself as God, the Son, throughout the Gospels, throughout his interactions with the religious authorities. So they stand accused also of rejecting and killing God the Son. They are tenants who want to be owners. They are men who want to replace God with themselves. And that's actually a very good summary for what sin is, according to the Bible. Because our our natural inclination is to be our own masters, to deny that we're created people dependent upon a creator, but to insist instead that we are the creators, we are the owners, we run the show. And we do this in a whole variety of different ways. Just two examples. Uh, On the one hand, we can be religious moralists. Uh, That's the kind of attitude that says, I'm going to church, I'm living a moral life, therefore God owes me a good life and eternal life. But you see, this is kind of a subtle way of actually keeping God at a distance, ironically. Because in this case, I'm the owner and God is my tenant, there to do what I want him to do. And I wonder, do you treat God like that? Do you find yourself treating God like that in terms of the way you live your life, consciously or or unconsciously? Or we can be the complete opposite of this. We can be libertines. So a libertine will say, I'm free to do what I want. I'm not created or dependent on God. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But a little experience of life quickly teaches us that actually that's not true. Uh, We're not the infinite, independent owners that we like to think we are. I'd like to think that out there amongst you today there are some Simply Red fans. Yes? Nervous laughter. Okay. Um, I was struck by um, an interview with Mick Hucknall uh, recently, their lead singer. uh, It was an interview in the Times. And he was talking about his hedonistic lifestyle that he was living in the 80s and 90s. And this is what he said. It's fun for a while, then it gets boring, and it's just emptiness with no rewards. There's no substance to it. You're on a treadmill of excess, of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. See, deep down, we know that we're actually tenants and not owners. We know we're not God, and yet so much of the time we're trying to act as if we are. And we don't like to be reminded of that fact either, so we might not actually beat up and kill the messengers who come to us in our everyday life, but we very naturally react dismissively or defensively to those messengers instead. So again, a question for you. If that's you today, will you stop metaphorically shooting the messengers that God is sending you and actually pause to listen to the message that they're bringing? It couldn't be more important that we do because the vineyard owner will act with perfect justice. And that's the second point, the justice of God. Because the message of verse 41 and verse 43 is sobering indeed. The chief priests and elders are agreed in verse 41 that it's absolutely right that the tenants face justice in the parable. But the problem for them is that they don't see themselves in the mirror. God is sending them messengers, the prophets, John the Baptist, Jesus, and they're rejecting them. And in doing so, they are rejecting God himself. And the problem of a religion is that it makes us think that we're doing all the right things, but all the while rejecting God himself. 
Allow me just to illustrate this with an, an imagined scenario for a moment. So imagine a widow has a son. She loves him dearly. She brings him up and makes great sacrifices to uh, pay for him to go to school and university. And as she brings him up, she says to him, Son, I want you to live a good life. I want you to always tell the truth, to work hard and to care for the poor. And then after the young man graduates from university, he, he goes off into his career in life, but he never speaks to or visits his mother ever again. Now imagine uh, if you, you, met this, uh, you met this man and, and you asked him about his relationship with his mother. And he responded, well, no, I don't have anything to do with her personally, but I always tell the truth. I work hard and I care for the poor. I've lived a good life. That's all that matters, isn't it? Well, I doubt you'd be very satisfied with that answer, would you? What about his relationship with his mother, who's loved him and given him everything? It's, the, it's very much the same with God. He's made us for personal relationship with him, not for impersonal religious moralism apart from him. So I think it stands to reason that the religious authorities of Jesus' time and, and, and we continue to reject God like these tenants do in the parable, then ultimately God will reject us. C.S. Lewis writes that there are only two kinds of people uh, in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. Or those who say to him, my will be done. We can't avoid the justice of God in this parable. But neither can we miss the extraordinary love of God that we find here too, which takes us to our, our final point, the extraordinary love of God. Because look at what this God is like before he judges. He acts with extraordinary, patient, vulnerable and generous love. Because you see, the vineyard owner sends a whole succession of servants to his, to his tenants who are treated horrifically, but he keeps persevering. He would have been well within his rights to send in the authorities to bring them to justice after the very first servant got maltreated, let alone after the whole succession of them get beaten, stoned and even killed. Let's face it, it's not the behaviour of a normal vineyard owner in verses 35 and 36. But then you get verse 37 to cap it all. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. Now, after all that's taken place in 35 and 36, we have to ask the question, why does he send his son? I mean, it seems just totally reckless, doesn't it? And that's just the point. This is no ordinary vineyard owner. It's very clear by this stage that He's not looking at the situation through a business lens or a legal contract. He's not going straight for justice. He's looking for relationship with these tenants. And he's going to extraordinary lengths to do so. Because he places his son and himself in the most utterly vulnerable position. I read this um, recently that um, one night in the uh, early 1980s, King Hussein of Jordan 
was informed by his security police that a group of Jordanian army officers were at that very moment meeting in a nearby barracks plotting a military overthrow of the kingdom. And instead of surrounding the barracks and arresting the plotters straight away, the king asked for a small helicopter to take him to the roof of that barracks. And then unarmed and alone, the king walked down a staircase and straight into the room where these plotters were meeting. And he addressed them as follows, as reported from one of those who was there. Gentlemen, it has come to my attention that you are plotting to overthrow the government. If you do this, the army will break apart and the country will be plunged into civil war. Tens of thousands of innocent people will die. There is no need for this. Kill me, and that way only one man will die, and all this bloodshed will be avoided. After a moment of stunned silence, the rebels apparently rushed as one to kiss the king's hands and feet and pledge loyalty to him for life. You see, King Hussein acted in total vulnerability in that moment. He was willing to give his life to save his country. He risked death and he achieved a political resurrection. And in this parable, the father and the son act together in total vulnerability. The son not only risks death, but he actually suffers it. And the, the Christian message tells us of a God who became a man, who made himself utterly vulnerable and died at the hands of those who should have worshipped him. Now this tells us something hugely important. This God of perfect justice, who will be our judge, is also the God of extraordinary, generous and vulnerable love. And remember also that Jesus told this parable in the very final week of his life. He was looking ahead to the cross where he would die and that perfect justice and that perfect love would meet. Our sin of rejecting God as our true owner would be taken by Jesus Christ in our place. He would face God's justice instead of us. And he would achieve not just a political Resurrection, but a physical resurrection from the dead. And his resurrection would be his vindication. And that's why he quotes Psalm 118 in verse 42 there, and he applies it to himself. Despite being rejected and killed by the religious establishment of his day, his resurrection proves that he faced God's justice in our place and that he was victorious in doing so. So as we close today, let's pray for ourselves that we might come to know, perhaps for the first time, or be reminded afresh of this extraordinary, victorious love of God for us in Christ, who made himself vulnerable, who gave himself for us, he gave his very life for us, that we might know the God who made us, both today and in eternity. Let's pray together. Almighty God of perfect justice and perfect love, we ask 
Please forgive us when we make ourselves owners and you our tenant. Please grant us the humility to seek your forgiveness. Please help us to see and believe the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ dying in our place and rising to new life that we might share in his life today and forever. And we ask it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.